Hi, 6 p.m. I'm Diana, one of the pastor here. It's wonderful to be here with you this evening. Now, if you've been here and you know me, sometimes, only sometimes, I appear to be quite trendy, I think. Well, I don't think I, don't think I can say that when you guys are here, but I think I am, you know, for my age, I'm quite trendy. Um, so 15 years, um, okay, so I might be, appear to be very trendy, but I use an HP laptop, this thing, okay? 15 years ago, I was convinced to buy a MacBook, but ended up, I installed Windows in it. Um, so MacBook, it's pretty much what the staff team use, and um, only three of us use HP's, like um, PC laptops. What I like about HP laptop is that it has an assess and respond software. It's always running at the background. Um, it would spot some hardware issues or software issues. I'm not an IT person, I don't know, but it's very comforting to know. And I realized that this assess and respond terminology is quite relevant in training as well. So maybe assess and respond to patients or students' needs in that sense. And it comes to, occurs to me that also that we all assess situations or claims and come up with ways to respond. So this past week, any Optus user here? Like myself, yep. So you might have done this assess and respond exercise. You might have assessed the situation and concluded that you're not going to have data for the rest of the day. No mobile coverage for you. And you might respond by lining up um, outside a Vodafone shop to get a prepaid SIM card. Okay, so that, that could be your week last week. And when it comes to reading Matthew, I think we need to do the same. We need to assess and respond. We are to assess who Jesus is, firstly, and based on our answer to that question, how are we to respond? So if you've got your Bible open, I think page 842, 43, let's turn to chapter 16, verse 13. Now, I came from Hong Kong, which, as far as I became aware of it, it has been one of the most expensive property markets in the world. And after three years of moving here, I realized, you know, and then three years ago, I moved to Sydney, which I think I have brought that with me or something must have happened. Now, now we live in the second most expensive property market in the world. So if you are interested in real estate, I'm asking what, what are the three main considerations when you pick a real estate? Anyone? Location, location, and location. Great, thank you. Now, when it comes to reading the Bible, I think that there are also three main considerations, and that's context, context, and context. So leading up to chapter 16, verse 13, what has been happening? Jesus had performed miracles. If you flip through the pages, you see that he taught with power and authority. And while, um, but while his popularity among the people was on the rise, so was the opposition from the religious leaders. And now, here in chapter 16, verse 13 onwards, the narrative takes a new turn. It's now time for Jesus to focus on the 12 disciples, taking them to Caesarea Philippi. It's, um, it was predominantly a Gentile town, which was known for its many temples to pagan gods, and a huge marble, white marble temple dedicated to Caesar. So it's against this backdrop of idolatry and the divinity of Rome that Jesus sought to find out whether his disciples have grasped who he really is. And being a good teacher, just like you guys, good Bible study leaders among you all, he started off by asking questions. 
So he asked them two questions, all 12 of them. The first one, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, Son of Man um, occurs about 80 times in the four gospel, and it's a way of Jesus to refer to himself. So essentially, he's asking, who do people say I am? So if you look at verse 14, they said, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still other Jeremiah of one of the prophets. General public sentiment shows that they think that Jesus is someone definitely very special. Well, John the Baptist, first of all, he ended 400 years of prophetic silence in Jewish history, copying, calling people to repent because the kingdom of God is near. And Elijah, he was regarded as one of the greatest prophets. Um, Malachi tells us that, you know, Elijah would come before the coming of the Messiah. And the Jews to this day still expect Elijah to return. They leave a chair vacant for him at the ceremony of circumcision. Jeremiah, apart from being a great prophet, Jewish tradition said that, you know, he took some items from the temple and on the day when the Messiah, before the Messiah come, Jeremiah would return, would return, produce the items, and the glory of God will appear again. These references are all their highest human categories. But they are all inadequate when it comes to describing Jesus. So Jesus asked them a second question, verse 15. But, marking the contrast, but what about you? Who do you say I am? So it's kind of like when you're watching a movie, they have this big wide shot, and now it's the close-up. Jesus was asking all 12 of them, their personal conviction of who he is. The question was presented to 12, but only one gave a clear answer. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, if you've been reading Matthew like you read a book, for example, that would be something that's ringing in your ear, there's like some echoing, because this echoes what the heavenly voice said at Jesus' baptism, Matthew 3, 17. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Or these were the words of the disciples after seeing Jesus walking on water, Matthew 14, 33. Truly, you are the son of God. But here, Peter's answer added one more key identity. He said, you are the Messiah. The Messiah is in Hebrew just like Christ in Greek. It means the anointed one. The expected king from the line of David that would deliver Israel and rule over them. So friends, Christianity never consists in knowing about Jesus. It always consists in knowing Jesus. And the discovery of who he is is a personal one. And the question of who Jesus is is presented to us all, and everyone needs to come up with an answer. So back to Peter, he assessed and responded. He's been with Jesus when he taught with power and authority. He saw Jesus calming the storm. He saw Jesus feeding the 5,000 and then 4,000 plus more. He saw Jesus walk on water. He saw him healed the sick. He took hold of what Jesus has revealed to him and recognized that Jesus is Christ, the anointed one, the Savior King. And he responded by believing and professing, proclaiming Jesus as the Savior King. Romans 10 verse 9, it says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be safe. The question is presented to us all today. Who do we think Jesus is? 
And to be a Christian, our first response is to believe and profess that Jesus is our Savior and our King. That's Christianity 101. Hey, 6 p.m. My name is Andrew, and Diana and I are preaching together tonight. And I just want to start by pointing out that if you have a Mac, you don't need assess and respond software because you don't ever have any issues. It's great. It's all good. <laughs> I haven't had to press Control-Alt-Delete for 10 years, and it has been great. Anyway, so just a dig at PC users. Apologies. Anyway. Um, let's get on to the Bible. How about that? Uh, so we said, we, we look at how do we respond to Jesus? And Diana's helped us see, the first thing we need to do to respond to Jesus is believing. But the second thing we see in this passage, if we're going to respond to Jesus, is not just believe, but belong. We are to belong to his church. I think there's a deep sense that we are craving to belong to something as a society. Loneliness is on the rise. Less and less people are belonging to RSLs or social clubs. We, we long to belong to something bigger than ourselves. And if you are a Christian, if you do what Peter did and confess that Jesus is the Messiah, you belong to his church. When we say church, we're not talking about a building. We're talking about his people, his church. Have a look at verse 18 and look at what Jesus says. Verse 18. Jesus says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. You may not realize this, but this verse is actually one of the most debated and controversial verses in the whole Bible. Did you know that? Because this verse is the verse that the Roman Catholics get the idea of the Pope. It comes from this verse. The Roman Catholic teaching is that what is going on here is Jesus is calling Peter the very first pope. Peter's the first pope. The pope in Roman Catholic teaching is the head of the church. The pope's teaching is infallible. There's no mistakes to it. And Peter's the first pope, and many more popes would come after Peter. And if you're part of a true church, you follow the line of the popes. So us here tonight, we're not a part of the true church because we don't. We're not Roman Catholic. That's, that's the t official teaching. But I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. I don't think this is Jesus coming up with the idea of a pope. Now, in this passage, it doesn't say that Peter is the head of the church. Jesus says, I will build my church. We know from other parts of the Bible that Jesus is the head of the church. And there's nothing here about a succession of popes coming after Peter and in Acts 15, there's a meeting of all the church leaders, and, and Peter's there, but he's not running the meeting. James is running the meeting. And we know Peter makes mistakes. The Apostle Paul had to rebuke Peter at one point. We know he's not infallible. So what is Jesus doing here? If he's not coming up with an idea, the, the Pope, well, what is he doing? Well, what has Peter just done? He has confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. He's got it. He's recognized who Jesus is. And so what does Jesus say? I'm going to build my church on your preaching. On this rock, as you keep proclaiming who I am, I'm going to build my church. 
what you have just discovered and confessed on that, Peter, I am going to build my church. As he proclaims and teaches Jesus, the church will be built on that very foundation. So it's not saying that the church depends on Peter, but that it began with Peter as he went out and preached the good news. Now, Peter wasn't the only one that did this. In the New Testament, we read that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles. There were other apostles also alongside Peter preaching the good news. Peter was kind of like the first among equals. He's really important, but there are other apostles also proclaiming Jesus. And on that foundation, Jesus began and builds his church. And he hasn't stopped. He has not stopped. He is still building his church today. As his word goes out, he is building his church. As our kids gather in kids' church, he is building his church. As people come to Alpha and explore who Jesus is, he is building his church. As we gather in our connect groups and we grow to be more like Jesus, he is building his church. He's never stopped. And I love what it says about the church. Jesus says, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Hades was the place of the dead in Jewish thinking. And so Jesus is saying, even death itself cannot stop the church, the people of God. After all, Jesus died and he went to the place of the dead. Death couldn't hold him down and neither will it hold down the people of God. Lots of people like to confidently say that the church is dying and falling away. Actually, look around the world, the church is growing in many ways and is multiplying rapidly. Many people have tried to stop the church with persecution or suffering or oppression, the church has only sprouted up in other places or only grown. Even the gates of death itself cannot stop the church because Jesus is building his church. Isn't it great that we get to be a part of it? Isn't it great that we get to belong to his church, his people. Isn't it great that he uses us to build his church? As we serve and as we love one another and encourage each other and, and teach God's word, he's using us and he will never stop. I love our church. I love all the ways in which God is working. I love all the ways in which people serve and use their gifts. I hope you love your church too. I hope you love gathering with God's people, and I hope you love seeing God at work. It is so great to belong to his church. And yes, around the world, churches, many churches fail, many pastors fail, and that should not be excused. That needs to be dealt with, and even our church. We are full of sinners, and pastors will fail you, and people will fail you, and you'll get hurt. But that does not take away from the beautiful reality that Jesus gave up his life for his church and he continues to build it day by day as his word is preached and he is proclaimed.
we belong to his church. Well, Andrew, does your MacBook flip over and have a touch screen? That's what I have to say. But, yep. <laughs> All right, let's... Um, so I'll now, up to the part, verses 21 to 28, and chapter 16, we're still on chapter 16. Now, if you read today's passage like watching a Netflix series, we would be so encouraged and excited by now. Because finally, after seasons and seasons and episodes and episodes, Peter recognized Jesus for who he really is. He made a significant about Jesus, and Jesus in turn made a significant statement about him. All good, happy ending. Well, just like a Netflix series, it never ends in, you know, on a high note, there's always a lot of twist and turn. And one of the twists and turn happens here in verse 21. So it says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. One verse but lots and lots of vital information in there. From that time on, like just on this phrase, that it is, it is true. As you read Matthew, you realize that from this particular time on, after Peter has com- confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, then Jesus started to be very plain and, and clear about his suffering. And he, he continues you on in later chapters as well. And then he told the disciple, what did he say to them? He said, he must go to Jerusalem, he must. So there is a necessity and a certainty of what's going to happen. So go to Jerusalem, he tells them about the location of what's going to happen in Jerusalem. So by the t- it's like a spoiler alert. By the time you read Matthew 21, when he started going to Jerusalem, you can kind of expect what's going to happen. Then he says, suffer many things. So it's not light affliction, affliction as, as, at all. The degree of harm will be intense. Um, and then he talks about the elders, chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And these group of people, they form the Sanhedrin, the highest legislative authority for the Jews. He told them the perpetrator, who's going to crucify him. And then he said he must be killed. There is a sure outcome of his suffering. That is death. But that's not the end. On the third day, he'll be raised to life. And so in the original language, it is a pass- in the, the verb is in the passive voice, which means that Jesus will be raised, and we know that he'll be raised by God the Father. A lot of information in one verse. What happens next? Verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He said, never Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Peter rebuked Jesus. Now, he might be calling Jesus Lord, but from what he said, he knows pretty, he, he seems like he knows a lot more than Jesus does. He seems to know that, uh, he seems to believe that he knew better what a Messiah should or shouldn't do. Because in his mind, just like any other Jews at that time, a Messiah should be a conquering Messiah a warrior king who would swipe the Romans out of Palestine and lead Israel to power. And why? You know, the Sanhedrin killing him. Like, why would a Jewish nation reject a Jewish Messiah? 
doesn't make sense. But then just as earlier on when Peter made a significant statement about Jesus and Jesus responded by making a significant statement about him, here Peter's harsh rebuke warrants Jesus' harsh response. Let's look at verse 23. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, he said. You are a stumbling block to me, and you do not have in the mind of concerns of God, but merely human concerns. The rock that Jesus would build his church is now called Satan, who is the templar, the adversary, the liar, whose main concern is to deflect anyone from the way of God. And what does that tell us? The gravity of Jesus' statement about, that shows that the salvation through Jesus' suffering on the cross is essential, it's fundamental, and completely non-negotiable. Jesus' death was so central to God's plan that to try to avoid it was to do the work of none less than the evil one himself. So Jesus, yes, he is the king, the saviour king, but he is also a suffering king. And because he go, Jesus' mission is to go through suffering, and he endures suffering, he expects his followers to do the same. Here's what he says in verse 24. Let's read together. That Jesus said to the disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to be my disciple, including yourself and myself. He said he must, that they must deny himself, themselves. So must, again, here we see that it's not an advice, it's a command. Deny themselves, deny ourselves, like, which means say no to ourselves and make God's, uh, God the ruling passion of our lives, putting our selfishness and all form of self-seeking to death. Take up their cross, take up the cross. What's the cross? That's the burden of sacrifice. Now, Jesus is saying that Christian life is a life of sacrificial service. And there is a sharp distinction between being generous and being sacrificial. So before I came here, I work and belong to a church called St. Andrews. Um, I've got friends who've been come, who came to visit this church, um, visiting from Hong Kong, and when they enter, they actually say like, oh, this is like St. Andrews, which is actually very, very similar. The layout is very similar. So it's a church that sits about 350 and because the church kept growing and we needed bigger space, and so uh, there was this plan to build an 860-seat auditorium. Because of that, we were doing fundraising at church. And one time we discussed in our small group, what does that mean? What does that mean for us to give to this project, to invest in God's kingdom through giving um, in this way? Because some people said that, oh, you know, if we give out, we can give up our savings, which just sits in the bank anyway, now, friends, that is generosity, you know, giving that is generosity for sure. Um, and some suggest, like, maybe we can defer his plan. He was saying, he shared, maybe I can defer my plan to buy my own property. Then I have more cash, and I, now I can give. Now, that's more than generous. And a couple in our group said, have we thought about downsizing our unit? Sell our property, have that extra, and give that extra to this project. And we were like, whoa. Friends, that's sacrificial. That's not just being generous. Because sacrifice hurts. 
And when Jesus asks us to take up his cross, the cross of sacrifice, he's asking us to live a life that is in constant awareness of the demands of God and the needs of others at our own expense. He goes on to say, you know, take up their cross and follow me. It's present imperative in this language, original language, which means keep on following. Keep on following Jesus. Follow Jesus is not like a walk in the park. It's like pressing on climbing a steep mountain. So I have these friends at Bible school. I, I was trained 20 years ago in my Bible school, friends with, uh, back in Hong Kong, a pastor from mainland China. So he was a pastor in the, in the church, in the underground church. And we found out as a small group, we have a like pastoral care group in, around us, and we found out that he, walks up, he woke up every day at 5 a.m. and worked out for two hours. And so that was, imagine 20 years ago, okay? That was before the time when men's expected to have six packs, you know, like when fitness was, you know, something big. And we thought, like, what was he doing? Like, why does he wake up every day to train and run for miles and miles? And then one day we asked him and he told us, he said, look, I'm getting ready, I'm training my body in case I need to run for my life, I have a good chance to succeed. And I'll be alive and I can keep preaching Jesus. That is confronting. It's hard and difficult to be a Christian, especially in places you know, like him at that time, when persecution was real. And it's real. But Jesus went on to give reasons why such a path of sacrifice, though it's hard, it's worth taking. He's urging us in the following two verses to take a longer view. He said, do you want to gain life here on earth, or do you want to gain life eternally? Do you want to gain this world, but lose your soul? And let's look at verse 27. He said, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. This verse, verse 27, contains a promise that he'll be back, and a warning, there will be judgment. One day the Son of Man will come in glory and splendor, and those who take, up, take a longer view, who've denied themselves, took up the cross and followed Jesus, they will receive a reward. So yes, Jesus is a king, but he is a suffering king. And with this assessment of the nature of his identity, we need to choose how to respond. And our response as Christians is what Jesus said, deny ourselves, take up the cross, keep on following him, even though it's hard, because the reward will be great. And Jesus is not simply the Savior King, the suffering King. Andrew's going to tell us he is also something more. So we believe Jesus, we belong to Jesus and his church, we follow Jesus, and lastly, we behold Jesus. We behold Jesus. See, yes, Jesus is the one going to the cross to suffer, but that does not mean he's not powerful. That does not mean he isn't glorious. He is the one who is so majestic, so beautiful, so glorious, that we are to stand before him and behold him. In chapter 17, there's this weird section called the Transfiguration. And Jesus goes up a mountain, and he is transformed. Look at verse 2 of chapter 17, verse 2. 
There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Can you imagine seeing that with your eyes? Can you imagine seeing him glow and his face light up brighter than the sun? This is not just an ordinary teacher. This is not just a human. Those who try and say that Jesus was just an inspiring teacher, you can't have that. He's either all or he's nothing. He's clearly glorious. I don't think it's that he became glorious at this moment. I think he already was glorious. And for just a few moments, the human trappings were stripped away so that people could see his true glory with their eyes, the glory he has had before the beginning of time. And he's there with his mates, Moses and Elijah. He's talking with them. Moses, the great leader of God's people who brought the law in the Old Testament. Elijah, a great prophet. Why these two? I think this is saying Jesus is greater than the law and the prophets. Jesus fulfills all the Old Testament laws and the Old Testament prophets. He is greater. Because there he is being transfigured, and Moses and Elijah are just like the backup actors. Jesus is the main character. He is the glorious one. And then comes the voice from the cloud, God, who says, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's what we need to do, friends. Listen to Jesus. Obey him. And we do it because we've beheld, beheld his glory. When you have something that's precious, let's say you have in your possession a beautiful painting that you are beholding, because it is so beautiful, you want to look after it. If you're holding in your arms a beautiful newborn baby, you want to care for the baby. And so it is with Jesus. We don't listen and obey Jesus because we have to, because it's empty religion. We listen and obey Jesus because we have beheld his glory. We have seen how beautiful he is. The Son of God who gave up his life for us is beautiful. And we have beheld that. And so we long to and find delight in listening to his voice. The disciples fall down in worship. And so should we before the King of kings, the Lord of lords, whose face is shining brighter than the sun. How I would have loved to have been there and seen that. But you know what? It's just a sneak peek of when Jesus comes back. This transfiguration, just a sneak peek of when we see with our very eyes his glory, brighter than the sun, and we behold it and fall down on our knees in worship. So as we finish, the question Jesus asks Peter is a question for every person in this room. Who do you say I am? It is a question that everyone needs to respond to. Everyone, it is the most important question anyone will ever deal with. He is either the son of God or he is not. Do you believe him like Peter did? Have you become part of his church? And do you love serving God's people and gathering with God's people? 
Will you follow him? Whatever it takes, whatever the cost. Will you fall to your knees in worship as you behold his glory and beauty? Friends, that is the most important question anyone will have to answer, and we all must choose our answer. Who do you say I am? Let me pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus, for his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to the throne of heaven. We thank you that he gave up his life for us and that you call us to follow him. Would you help us to take up our cross, to count everything else as lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus? And we stand in awe right now of Jesus' beauty and his glory. We want to behold it. We want to give you the praise and the honour. And stand in awe as we offer our lives as a living sacrifice in honour of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.